0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Pete Connolly. My guest today is Michelle Meek, Assistant Professor of Communication Studies at Bridgewater State University and author of Consent, Culture, and Teen Films, Adolescent Sexuality and U.S. Movies. The book was published by Indiana University Press in 2023. Good morning, Michelle. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. The pleasure is mine. I'm excited to talk about this new book. Uh, Before we get started, can you just tell our audience about your background and your training?
1: Sure. Um, So I uh, did my Ph.D. actually in uh, literature in English, um, but I did my dissertation on a combination of film and literature, and I was really looking at um, consent puzzles or perplexing depictions of consent. Um, I'm also a filmmaker, a film journalist, and a writer. I've published at um, Ms. Magazine, Salon.com, and a a number of other outlets. And um, I am a filmmaker also and have a short film coming out this summer, which is a short film about uh, youth who are pushing forward uh, gender inclusivity in sports and so I always have trouble answering any question where it's like, what do you do? <laughs> it's like, ah, uh, where do I start? Um, but I and I teach um, a combination of screenwriting, film production, film studies, digital media <laughs> and yeah. And so that's that's where I'm at.
0: So it seems in your your um, your public intellectual work and in your creative work that concerns over gender and social justice kind of in the before, So Perhaps I'm kind of setting up the answer for my next question, which is what inspired this book in particular?
1: Absolutely. So like I said, in my dissertation, I was really looking at puzzling depictions of consent, and I was focusing mostly on the 1990s in particular, which I find for girls in, in particular, a, a, a fascinating time of negotiation on whether girls were victims or predators. Um, or some combination. And as a result, it, it kind of had that the 90s presented us with a lot of very puzzling consent depictions. Um, after I finished my degree in 2016, I, you know, I was working and thinking about my how I wanted to kind of work on this project or this theme as a book, um, knowing that seeing how Me Too really shifted the conversation and knowing that I wanted to kind of expand on the ideas that I had started and think more about what is the consent culture doing for us? How how does the fact that we now prioritize consent or we think consent is important, whether or not we actually enact that or not is another story, but this this cultural awareness of the importance of consent, how is that manifesting? And I really became in particular interested in youth oriented films, I guess because it's a genre I really like. I'm drawn to it. I've made myself the films that I've made are are kind of youth oriented films as well. And I also am fascinated by the agency. Question that happens with youth, because already youth are a category of subjugated individuals who are seen as not fully formed with full agency. Um, And so the question of consent for for them and how we depict consent in their sexual interactions became an area that I really wanted to kind of dig into more and see what these representations meant for us about how we think about youth how we think about sex how we think about consent
0: yeah and um when i was in graduate school i actually was uh, part of a group that did consent education in high-risk communities uh on campus mm. which was our nice way of saying fraternities and sports teams um and one of the things we learned very quickly was um how little uh young people in general knew about what consent entailed um and how defensive they became as they learned consent fails so i think the the obvious place for us to continue our discussion is not so much what is consent but how has consent been debated and negotiated i think you lay that out really nicely in the beginning of the book of like various stakeholders kind of expanding and challenging and reorienting what we mean when we say consent so can you and i know you spend some time at that in the, in the intro but perhaps briefly kind of give us a a starting point for uh, how we might think about consent uh, in contemporary culture and society.
1: Absolutely. I mean, in its most simplest form, consent is simply permission for a sexual, I mean, sexual consent is permission for a sexual act. Consent is permission for something, right? Um, Of course, it's not that simple and that's where it gets interesting because there's a distinction between what we think and feel and what we say and do and one of those could be yes and one of those could be no or right you know vice or they could be swapped and or they both could be yes or both no right um how we define consent sometimes is one or both of those things even legally and so the fact that Consent is kind of widely accepted as a necessary norm for interactions, but at the same time, not easily defined or agreed upon in terms of what it means in practice. I think it's kind of fascinating. because that's really where the complexity comes in. We don't necessarily all agree on what what moment consent needs to be obtained or moments, right? And how often and for what, in what form, verbally, kind of with body language, et cetera. And, you know, there's a lot of um, understanding of just body language, especially in sexual interactions. And I think it's been fascinating to see how teen films negotiate this. Where do they draw these lines? In yes, this is the moment when someone needs to say something that they consent, <laughs> you know? Um, and that's telling us something about what, where we think those lines maybe should be. Whether they're right or not, I don't know, but that's, you know, that's what we're seeing.
0: Yeah, and in particular, you advocate for a a sex-critical position. Can you talk a little bit more about that, this kind of idea of balancing uh, the social importance of consent with also, while avoiding kind of uh, a panic about sexuality, especially among, you know, young people who are coming to terms with their sexuality? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I consider myself a very progressive person who's open to all forms of sexuality and gender expression and identity um i also you know i was kind of raised with the many of the ideas of the radical feminist ideology and i took a class with mary daly and um in college so i i and i appreciate a lot of the critique that some of those voices have brought to the question of how can we ever find consent when there's so much, you know, coercion baked in to our system, essentially. Um, And I appreciate and understand that. So the sex critical position um, that Lisa Downing kind of came up with, I really appreciate because it's kind of a position of question everything. Everything is open to critique. Um, And so to me, that means that we can pull in some of those ideas of uh the radical feminist ideology of the fact that culture is needs to be critiqued while not pulling in some of the ideas that that have come from that, like, you know, women can't consent to interactions with men, which I don't believe, obviously. That does to me, that makes no sense. So um, but I think that it really becomes that even consent should be questioned. I do think consent is a valuable kind of tenet for our society, but to not question it and to not look at it in, in greater detail and and sort of see it for its all of its nuances is to ignore the messiness of real-life interactions. And when we do that, we sort of suggest that, oh, no means no, yes means yes. Why can't people get it? Well, people, you know, I mean, some people are, are you know, just not doing the right thing obviously but other times there are messy situations where we can have a lot of ambivalent ex- feelings about something that's happened and and that might you know maybe that's okay and acknowledging that is is a good first step in not just trying to shove all that under the rug and pretend it's not there i'm not really sure where that gets us you know <laughs> yeah
0: i'm wondering um if we could develop this a little bit further if you could talk a bit about um the intersection of adolescence and sexuality and the history of, like, law and regulation. I mean, I know that's a big question. You can write books on that. But <laughs> for our purposes here, you know, um, this need to kind of protect childhood innocence and and the very real need to protect the well being of young people. But at the same time, this concern uh, or, or, or this understanding that, you know, sexuality is a natural human phenomenon, right? Right. And how... The, the state both has to kind of negotiate, it's a good word, right? We're cultural studies scholars. Right. Um, how, how the state has to kind of navigate both a a, a moral concern, but also, you know, a, a health concern. And it's a public health issue. Though.
1: Right. I mean, I think that one of the things that I am concerned about in the book or one of the concerns I kind of lay out is this idea of youth sexuality and how uncomfortable it makes so many of us in society. And, um, and I do think that, that we want to protect youth, especially from being exploited by adults, which I don't, you know, I think that our instincts are good, right? We want to protect youth from being exploited by adults sexually or in any way. Um, But at the same time, we've kind of, let go of the notion that sex is a normative process that develops over time in and through childhood in part and this is where it's just really hard for us as american us society in particular i think to figure out where to draw these lines and we've we've kind of gone in the direction frankly to be very harsh with laws around youth and sex we've kind of decided that youth and sex are a toxic combination and and we've and we've had to backpedal a little bit as a culture and society legally because for instance you know there were all these laws and then they had these uh, about you know age of consent for instance and then well now what happens when an 18 year old is with a Seventeen-year-old, and so we had to develop these laws that kind of made close-in-age exceptions, where okay, the punishments don't are not as severe or don't are kind of not at all in certain kinds of situations, right? That that wasn't the idea to prevent two high school students from having sexual interaction, right? Um, And similarly with sexting, we've had to backpedal because the laws that Since the 70s, we've put forward where, you know, child pornography is outside of the protection of First Amendment rights. Um, And then youth started sexting in abundance, right? Not just a small fraction of them, but many, many, many of them to the point that we had to really reconceive a lot of those laws or make exceptions there to say, OK, it doesn't count if a youth creates their own images and they're sharing them. That's not child pornography. Um, but I think that we still have a long way to go. I still feel like we're in this phase, this sort of reactive phase from the 70s, which was a kind of shocking across the board with how much youth sexuality became exploited so quickly. And um, and the backlash to that was quite strong, and I feel like we're still in that moment. We haven't found a way to come out of that moment to say, okay, sex is normal and develops over time, and children, too, have sexual curiosity and desire, and that's okay. It doesn't mean that it has anything to do with adults, even. Um, and, but we just don't have a visual language for how to even think about that or we just don't. Um and I, I don't I can't really picture how we get out of this, to be honest, but we're still in that moment legally and culturally.
0: Well that sets, that sets up my next question quite well, which is, um, you know, what do scholars of film and media have to offer to this conversation? Um, you know, you were talking about sexting, which obviously, you know, involves media production and circulation. Um, and I'm curious if, if we could kind of go from there to think about how how does film offer a space uh, and a contribution to this important uh, social focusables
1: yeah I mean one thing I make really clear in the book is that teen films do not necessarily have anything to do with actual teens because they're not or at least not actual teens today because they don't they're not written by teens they're Um, not directed by teens, they're also often not acted by teens because of some of these laws around child pornography. Usually the people who are depicting young people in film when there's any kind of sexual interaction happening are over 18. And so we're not really seeing youth in its actual form at all. Um, But... You know, that doesn't mean that these films are not important. What they're showing us really is what are the concerns of adults today around youth and sexuality? And sometimes I wonder if if it really is just delayed several decades because some of the movies that are made today are made by people who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, right? And they're thinking about their own youth when they write and direct these films. And so, um, but of course they still have to bring it up to the cultural moment. They're still taking cues from the culture at large. Ultimately it's youth that shift that conversation. But I think that as scholars, we're really, you know, what I'm trying to do is look at these films and say, what, what are we thinking about youth and their sexuality? What are we thinking about consent and affirmative consent and, and kind of, Expose, helping to expose how these films show us that consent is actually much more complicated than we sometimes admit, that youth sexuality is much more complicated than we sometimes like to admit.
0: Yeah. And, and I was thinking as I was reading the book, you know, um, I, I was younger and coming of age during the romance film cycle. Right. And I remember it's bad in particular. Right. It's this really troubling scene um, about, you know, I'd have to get her drunk and I have to be drunk so that we like, so I have like plausible deniability. right? So, so it, and, and, and thinking about that moment, right. You know, not that long ago. And then thinking about where Columbus is now we're often in some kinds of quests for sex and with a decision not to have sex. Right. right. Um, so, so I, I think you're really capturing this, this interesting kind of moment where comedy, which is so long, kind of leaned to the, we're just having fun. We're just, playing around. This is just anarchy, right? Looking back to Porky's, right? Or or Animal House. And that kind of, you know, high school, college mindset of sexuality is kind of this raucous, division affair, right? Where just everyone's having sex and that's the way it is. Um, to, to really kind of approaching these in a more nuanced and, and maybe even socially responsible way. Right? Um, so I'm answering the question i should be asking so oh, <laughs> I, i'm curious to hear your thoughts on on how you're seeing representation of consent changing over time and maybe especially in the last five to ten years mm-hmm.
1: well first i i think that i just want to add that super bad is a fascinating film to me because it's kind of pulling from the trope of the boys want to get the girls to have sex right they want to lose their virginity and they create it's like you said a sex quest film um very kind of traditional but at the same time the film is almost like poking fun of itself as it's doing it even in that scene where where you know um I think it's Seth saying, you know, we should get them drunk or something. It, it, we already know like Evan, through Evan's facial expressions and, and all of his reaction that this is not an okay idea. Like we already kind of know that that this is not tenable. And, um, and as a result, yes, it does not come to fruition the way that they imagined, right? And so even there, and that was like 2007, I'm terrible with remembering dates. I have to write everything down. It was like in that vicinity. Um, so I feel like we were already kind of entering a consent culture at that time. The fact that that film was, at while having that idea and pulling, drawing from that idea, also subverting that idea at the same time shows that it was no longer you know, sort of feasible for them to make a film where that was the outcome that they did achieve that goal by getting the girls drunk, which is what was happening a couple of decades earlier. So it was definitely a shift. Um I think in the last, you know, handful of years, what we're really starting to see, um, I mean, you know, it's funny, some things change kind of dramatically and other things, it feels like we how are we still in this moment? <laughs> um, I think that there's a couple of trends that I've seen lately that really seem quite persistent right now. One of them is that I am seeing a good movement towards more queer-oriented stories, and that's exciting. You know, there's a film Bottoms coming out this summer. I can't say that it looks great, but at the same time, it's exciting that it's coming out at all, right? Um, And then um, so that that's movement in a good direction. There's there was anything's possible, which is a also not one of my favorite movies, but the idea that they had a trans teen story and that was you know released on kind of a major platform. This is great news for inclusivity. Um, we're seeing a lot more intersectionality just being depicted in youth stories across the board. Um, one trend that I'm not as happy to see kind of continuing is the, this idea that gender, flipping the genders solves all of our problems, that somehow the problem was that boys were not getting the consent from girls. So if we solve that problem, it's a moot point if the girls get consent or not from the boys. Um, And this is still quite persistent, you know, movies like American Pie Girls Rules, a lot of these movies that came out very recently, um, Sex Appeal, um, you know, so I I think that trend um, concerns me a little bit more just because... It suggests that consent, our affirmative consent framework, is highly gendered in that we're only concerned about consent for girls. And that just makes no sense to me. Um, We have to stop perpetuating this idea that boys are always consenting to any interaction. That's just not true. And boys are assaulted, too. And um, I think that I would like to see us push back on that
0: more. Yeah, you, you mentioned that in regards to a uh, um, Saturday Night Live sketch, mm-hmm. where like even the idea of a young man vocalizing, uh, you know, the traumatic experience he's been to becomes kind of a, a, a comic situation or, um, you know, becomes grounds to kind of celebrate his exhibition of masculinity that he has been um, assaulted, right? Right. Um, right. and, and it, I think one of the things that's kind of interesting in this conversation is this: how different uh, genres or modes kind of handle this, right? Um, you know, is, is this the subject for uh, melodrama, or is this the subject for, for comedy and how that gets handled as well? Um, we talk a little bit more about the the teen film itself as a as a as a construct, right? You 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 draw upon work by Catherine Crystal and Tim Cherry and, and children's lit scholarship as well, and thinking about this kind of disconnect between the subject, the audience and the creators. Um, Can you kind of articulate that a bit more for the listener?
1: Sure. So as I had kind of mentioned a little bit before, teen films are not necessarily about youth, even though they are about youth, (laughs) right? They're not about actual youth. They don't necessarily show us what it's like to be a young person today, for instance. Um, at the same time, they're not necessarily for youth. Um, some people do define teen film as a genre that's for youth specifically, but I really don't, and many people don't because so many of them are actually rated R and are clearly marketed towards adults and have been for many years. So to me, teen film is not just a genre for, for youth. Um. I also think that one of the things I try to do in the book a little bit is push beyond the traditional boundaries that have been set by some youth scholars. We tend to kind of think more contemporary in terms of teen films. Um, You know, some some really focus on like Sherry focuses a lot on how teen films really had their heyday in the 80s, which is very legitimate. Um, Doherty looks at how the 40s kind of invented the teen pick. But really, if you go back throughout film history, you can see youth-oriented films or stories about youth and their rebellions of all sorts from silent movies. And so in the in the book, I try to look back and kind of find the thread of that genre from the earliest stages, especially be, interesting to me because... You know, from a very early stage, the concern over films and the, quote, dangers that it could, you know, wreck on society, right, (laughs) the havoc it could wreck, um, were a lot about protecting youth. And because youth could be depicted in certain ways that were compelling and then would want to behave in certain rebellious ways outside of, you know, quote, society norms. Um, And so it's interesting to me to kind of find the earliest threads of that and see exactly how the kind of censorship arm came in to regulate that, to kind of simultaneously self-regulate it through the production code, but also legally, right? Because cinema was outside of the First Amendment protection for several decades. And that was really why the production code came into being, because it, you know, the they had to be more careful because they didn't want to invest in movies that were going to then get shut down. Um, And then seeing how, you know, the seventies and how when the production code and the first amendment rights kind of resurfaced, that decision was reversed. And then what came next, you know, and how the uh, child pornography laws really came in then to curtail visual depictions once again, in some ways rightfully so for sure um you know but in other ways we took it quite far and and now it's really gotten to the point where it's hard to depict like i said you know what we could in a book which is that you know a youth could start having sexual curiosity and desire at a at a younger age than the age of consent
0: yeah yeah, let's let's run with that a little bit you discuss um uh, in the introduction, this idea that consent culture has become kind of a production code of sorts, right, with this ethical dimension. Can you explain that a bit more about, um, you know, how these discourses of the consent in the public discourse and and uh, it, even coming out of law, right? You, a lot of your your framework is kind of moving into with debates within feminist legal theory. Um, how are we seeing that kind of guiding? creative practice in in mainstream being said. Are- mm-hmm.
1: You know, I think that that consent culture is coming in to kind of force films, especially around youth, to take consent into account. And in many ways, this is a positive thing, right? I mean, I don't really want to see more movies where date rape is a joke. Like, that's not, I'm not looking for that to be the next stage here. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of happy to see those go into the past. Um, and I think that, you know, we do as a society self-regulate a lot what is considered normative, right? And it's a combination. It's not just that the movies are influencing how we think about Saxon consent and youth and all of that. It's also that our ideas are changing these kinds of depictions over time. So it's, it's a, it's a mutual Shift that occurs over time. And adults are changing those stories, and youth are changing those stories. Um, I think that consent culture, so like I said, is really kind of come in to say, okay, especially in youth films, consent has to be part of the conversation here. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of come out in some strange ways, like I said about this, you know, oh, it's okay for girls to be pursuing boys and not having to get their consent because that's not the problem we were trying to solve. Um, And that's troubling because we're not really getting at what we mean when we say affirmative consent. Um, And I think that's where we need to kind of push back on what some of these depictions are presenting us with so that we can make sure that as a culture, we're understanding what we mean when we say consent or how, what we're trying to teach young people or understand even ourselves about consent. Um And these are, you know, obviously I think that I really do stand by what Catherine Driscoll said at one point about how, teen films or youth films don't necessarily have to be good for youth, right? That's not necessarily, they aren't educational films necessarily. Um, But it's clear to me that filmmakers and writers feel like they have some sense of responsibility in depicting stories that fit into the zeitgeist, right? that fit into what feels ethical at a certain moment. And there's no doubt in my mind that right now we're in a moment that's a consent culture moment. And I don't know how how we we kind of the 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 rules of that are quite interesting because like i said it's very gendered it's very cis oriented um you know one of the things i talk about in the book is how queer youth are kind of left out of that conversation in a lot of situations even though queer youth are often um sexually assaulted at higher numbers statistically than um heterosexual youth so I think we have to get at some of what these depictions are presenting us with and and really be more explicit about what it is that we think about consent and not try to kind of oversimplify.
0: And we've talked about this a bit already, but, but you know, in light of our, and then bringing our discussion to our great moment, I'm curious if we could talk about um, social media and mobile phones and how they've complicated our received understandings of adolescent sexuality. Uh, And media that represents it.
1: Right. So in the conclusion of the book, I shift to talking and thinking about sexting, which on the surface seems like it has nothing to do with teen films. But I, I think of it as its kind of counterpart, because sexting are the sexual stories, visual stories that youth are sharing, creating and sharing among themselves that are not allowed to be seen by adults because if a if an adult sees them, then that's considered them having access to child pornography. So there are these private sexual kind of interactions of youth, which, as opposed to teen films, which are these very public, not necessarily accurate at all, (laughs) um, depictions of adults, right? Because they're the adult actors in situations that represent youth. So, um, and I think that there has been a couple of i mean i'm not a sociologist but there have been a couple of trends that social media seems to have pushed forward one is that youth are having less physical you know intercourse sexual interactions than they were years ago in many regards although sexting is higher so there's been this shift that many of us who grew up without cell phones the kinds of cell phones that sexting would have facilitated um it's hard for us to even picture kind of that change. Um, but I think like with everything, there are positive effects too, because youth are able to access more stories about other queer individuals and gender diverse individuals. Whereas, you know, maybe in years ago, you would be growing up thinking this is just you. Whereas now there's much more of a community for um all sorts of things. Right. And I think that's empowering. So, yeah. Um, but I found it very interesting to think more about sexting and how adults had to kind of get on board with how youth actually felt about sexting.
0: Also, it seems that, and you talk about this in your book as well, you know, um, the advent of streaming platforms is leading to kind of a, an increase in teen in films and gags. And we're even seeing teen films getting theatrical distribution. So this is all to say, where do you see teen film today, uh, especially in regards to how it's it's handling concerns over sexuality?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, one of the things I argue in the book, I mean, Hollywood and 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 film industry, there's no doubt is is in a at a crisis point of sorts. Um, not even just because of all the strikes, but just because the industry is really changing and a lot is going to streaming, and we don't really know what that's going to mean for the industry as a whole. But I will say that the teen film has been an incredibly robust genre. Um, You know, some of the most successful films made via streaming even have been teen films like, um, you know... To all the boys I've loved before, the kissing booth. Some of these films that just were enormously popular and spun off trilogies have been teen films, even shows related to youth. You know, like Sex Education are are in in that they're not teen films. It's it's more of a show, but it's that genre. I think in general is very robust, and we are still seeing um, youth oriented films released to uh, you know the mainstream. I recently went and saw No Hard Feelings and you know that again fits into this genre of a story of a young boy who has a relationship of sorts with an older woman she's 32 um and that film really to me depicts this hybrid time that we're in where consent is definitely kind of part of the plot there's an awareness that this relationship is inappropriate you know i was, I was watching it with one of my kids and they were like oh they're going to end up together and i was like there's no way they they can't like it's 2023 a film like this they will not end up together um but at the same time they go quite far and i i think that it's hard for me to picture them flipping the gen- genders in the story and making a film where it was a 19 year old girl who had no sexual experience whose parents hired a 32 year old m- man to sexually initiate her <laughs> and she actually developed some relationship with him like i just the fact that it's hard for me to to swip th- switch that in my head suggests that there's something amiss here um and so you know we're still in a kind of weird moment where we haven't fully gotten on board with some of these ideas that we supposedly espouse so much um but again you know that there's a film bottoms coming out which is a queer sex crust story you know so i think we're really starting to to see changes in that and i think some of these other aspects are still under negotiation for sure.
0: Yeah. And it seems that, you know, we're seeing these kind of contradictory impulses maybe where like on the one hand, there's this sense of, um, we need to protect young people. uh, And even though they're emerging into their sexual identities, you know, we, we need to talk about this in hushed tones and we need to talk about it comedically. But on the other hand, it seems some of these films you're talking about are also giving a sense of like, dude, why haven't you had sex yet? You know what I mean? Like, get on it, right? And, and to the point that this becomes kind of the the, cru- the the narrative pivots on this point of like, you know, you're a 19-year-old man, you're failing in your maturation to not have had sex. Um, it, it's interesting to see those kinds of ongoing tensions over, we shouldn't talk about this, it's inappropriate, but also why haven't you done it yet?
1: Right. I mean, I think that, that the, one of the things is a lot of us grew up with this genre of the sex quest films that was just very, it was a fun genre in many ways, right? And enjoy. And so I think a lot of these and and, and the director of No Hard Feelings, you know, who also did Good Boys, you know, this is clearly a genre that he gravitates toward, you know, and so he's and he's trying to bring it up to a more kind of contemporary moment. But yeah, there's a lot of ambivalence there. It's like, oh, these were fun films that we grew up with. But at the same time, now, looking back, we realize how many problems there were in these films. But to your point also, like, I think there's something very interesting about a generation of people who grew up having, you know, intercourse and in sex at a younger age on average. Right. I think, um, you know, in the 80s, it was like 50 percent of of young people had had sex I, so I don't know I'm not going to remember the numbers exactly but the numbers are down right and so we and we know that and and actually I was kind of shocked to see that even the numbers of masturbation are down and that cuz I thought oh okay it's just that there's less in person physical interactions but when you see those numbers actually down you think hmm what does that say like have we stifled the idea of youth sexuality so much that youth are even not thinking that it's okay to touch themselves like that's to me then I feel like okay we've we've maybe gone too far like I think it's fine that youth wait till they're ready to have sex like I would not be a parent who hired someone to initiate <laughs> my child like that's bizarre um but I also think that you know our silence around so many of these these topics and our our persistence as a culture to kind of ignore so much is not helping youth feel that sex is is okay and normal and you know I don't know I I, I I don't know how many young people are coming to to terms with the negotiation on this at this point like I think they recognize more and more that consent is important um and how to set boundaries but yeah some of those numbers are surprising
0: yeah, There's so much to talk about here. I mean, we could go on for another two or three hours, probably. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was just rethinking about the films in my own and how much, how often those sex quest films end up in, in a kind of very moral way, right? They end up with, you know, the, these men who are hellbent on having sex. We don't see any female sexual agency in those moments, right? We don't see the other women, you know, longing for the sex as well. And yet, when it does happen, it often happens within, you know, um a committed relationship based on love and affection rather than say a more uh informal um you know kind of one-time encounter right so so these kinds of moral impulses that are kind of you know very much present in films
1: definitely i think there's been some persistent problematic stereotypes like for example that sexually active or quote promiscuous girls invite sexual assault or or sexual assault against them doesn't matter things like that you know and that's um but i think you're right that from the very from throughout even the 70s and 80s there was still even in a film like 16 candles which really does depict date rape like it's some kind of joke um at the same time is prioritizing a relationship over sex in the main storyline and so yeah, there there does sem- tend to be kind of this um, moralistic, and the same thing with Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which we all think of as a very like, um, kind of, you know, lighthearted sex comedy. <clears throat> but at the same time, you know, she gets pregnant, she has to have an abortion, like the consequences of it, and and the sexual interactions that Stacy has in that film. I think actually are brilliantly depicted because they're not depicted as these fun-filled rumps for her like she actually doesn't get much physically out of them and as a result it kind of it depicts you know heterosexual intercourse i think kind of at its worst in a way which is funny at the same time that it's glamorizing it it's also sort of depicting it as maybe not worth it <laughs> I don't know for Stacy, you know, and and then at the end she does decide that she wants to be in a relationship, it's instead and take it slow, and that this is better, you know, and and but that does come across as, as kind of moralistic, and and I I think it's always it's it's you know easy a similar kind of film where there's like you know oh, it's okay to be a, quote, slut, but she's actually not, right? <laughs> and so um, I think there's a lot of ambivalence about about where we draw those lines culturally.
0: Absolutely. This has been such a rich conversation. I'm curious to hear what you're working on next. Are you, are you continuing with a thread in this project, or are you reorienting all together?
1: Well, you know, I always have more ideas than I can actually implement, <laughs> which is a good thing. I'm not complaining. Um Right now, I'm I'm working on a bunch of different chapters, kind of along the same themes. But I'm really I've become very interested. I don't know if you can hear that. Hold on a second. A huge truck going by. Can you hear that? I don't know. Okay. Um. So I've become really interested in thinking more about queer and gender diverse youth. Um. And so that is likely to be uh, an avenue that I follow. But as a filmmaker, I also kind of go back and forth from creative and critical projects, and I'm always kind of torn between the two. Right now, I have a short film, uh, Bay Creek Tennis Camp, coming out this summer at film festivals, which is about youth who are kind of pushing the the tendency of adults to separate youth by gender all of the time in sports. And kind of the film gently poses the question, what if gender were not the best way of separating youths, actually? Um, and I see it more as a conversation starter to, to show to young people and adults and, and think about these issues and kind of start talking about it. Um, so that's kind of what I've been working on now. And obviously, I'm still, you know, talking about the book a lot and writing and all of that. So I keep busy, you know. <laughs>
0: yeah, it sounds great. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Michelle. The book is Consent, Culture and Teen belts. Adolescent Sexuality in US Movies, available now from Indiana University Press and other online booksellers. This has been Pete Cunzing, and you are listening to New Books in Film on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.